No, no, no. She's not a medical doctor, but she can sure cure your tax problems or your financial woes. She's the how-to girl. It's the Dr. Friday Show. If you have a question for Dr. Friday, call her now, 737-WWTN. That's 737-9986. So here's your host, financial counselor and tax consultant, Dr. Friday. kinds of great things oh wonderful okay i do have a wonderful guest on and you can just open his line if you want uh russ cook with russ cook and associates will be joining us today let's see if russ is online russ can you hear me yes i can thanks look at you technology (laughs) is working fabulous finally (laughs) It's like, hey, you know what? It it is what it is, my friend. We all live and learn. Um, All right. So, Russ, why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about who in the heck is Russ Cook? Not that they shouldn't know you already. Uh, Well, I'm a board-certified estate planning attorney. I've been doing it for over 30 years. My father and grandfather did it as well, so I couldn't escape it generationally. Went to law school in D.C. and came here. Lucky us, because I've yes. known you for a good, I don't know, 15 years at least, I guess, thereabouts. Okay. Um, and uh, I, um, Russ handles all my stuff, and I refer him to my clients, and I've got all kinds of noises going on over here. Um, and so today I wanted to have Russ on because it's getting close to the end of the year, and I always love having you on to talk about some of the things, not even really necessarily the end of the year situation, but this year, gosh, it's been a crazy year, period. But a lot of times... Things happen every year, and in dealing with estates, it seems to me that would be one of the things that we need to consider. You know, do we? How often should we look at our estate planning? Is there certain times when something major? Obviously, I'm thinking getting married, getting divorced. You know, um, so is there is there a certain time period people should do it? Is every time there's a major event, how should people look at their estate planning? Well, we're sending letters out to our clients every two years asking them to look over their estate planning documents. And if certain events have happened in their lives, then, of course, uh, it'd be a good time to come in and review what they have because the estate planning documents are not only wills, but also power attorney for financial matters, power attorney for health care matters and living wills. You want to make sure the people you have in place are the ones that you think will do the job. Yeah, I have one that will pull the plug. I'm very happy with that theory. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everyone's actually. Okay, so one of the big things, and I learned this years ago from you, and I didn't even know it, and I have people to this day that whenever I hear this, I'm like, no, no, no. But how important it is to have like a joint bank account with your kids. A lot of times, especially as we get older, we want to make sure that our children have access to help pay for bills and things. So they add them to the bank account. Is that a good idea or not? It's. Probably not a good idea because in the event that the child runs into credit problems or even if the child gets divorced, that account is considered owned by the child just as much as the client. So they can lose those assets to third-party creditors. What can they do instead of doing that? Well, we usually recommend that they keep their name on the account And if they need someone to manage that account for them, if they become incapacitated, file a 
durable power of attorney for financial matters with the bank, and that will allow the child to then manage that account for them during their life. And they have to be also careful as far as putting beneficiaries on those accounts when they pass. Some people come to me and say, well, I'll just make my mom the beneficiary and she'll give the money to my kids. Yes. Well, there's no reason for the mom to give the money to the kids. And if the mom's running into problems, then, you know, they could, the mom could lose the assets to her creditors. So you have to yeah. make sure that the estate plan is a little bit more coordinated with that, with either a will or a revocable trust. Yeah, I have a situation where uh, um, I, I sent them your address. I'm not sure if they went or not, but the daughter inherited everything at the time the father passed away. He had her as the pilot, you know, automatically at paid on death, I guess it's called. And the wife is still alive. So the money is actually mom's. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. she's having to use it. It's the mother's money and she's the only child. I think, you know, I mean, they missed the step in there somewhere. So I'm yeah. like, you inherited the money and thank goodness in this particular situation, it is not an issue. But my concern is what if something happens to the daughter before the mother, then it's the husband, which may not be on the same page. That's right. And sometimes it's siblings where one sibling gets all the assets and the other gets none. And under the uh, thought that the one that gets it will split it with the other a lot of people change their minds when someone dies. <laughs> Money has a it. funny way. And I, I mean, I can also say from the tax standpoint, it's not oh. always good because there's not a way if, if somebody leaves it all to one child for, let's say, a 401k and that person takes the money out. There's no way of showing that they gave half of that to their child, uh, to their brother or sister. They have to pay the tax first, which could be a higher tax before that actually happens. So it's not always a good idea just to their thought is, oh, I'll leave it all to the oldest and he'll take care of the younger kids. And yeah, that's just not a plan I would want. Um, no. You know, especially in and my it, family it, when there was eight kids, you know, that would have been, I was the last one. I would have gotten nothing by the time it got to me. Thank goodness. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Yeah. And the other problem we run into is when clients name minor children as beneficiaries of accounts and life insurance, not realizing that in order for the minor to take the minor has to have a guardian. So even mm-hmm. if you name your child as a beneficiary of a life insurance policy, expecting your wife to take care of it for your child, that's not going to happen. The child's going to need the, the mom to file a mm-hmm. formal action in court in order to be able to handle those assets. Yeah. So you're causing a lot more conflict. Is there, a, a, instead of leaving it directly to a minor, what should they be considering? Well, they, they should have an estate plan in place in which there's a trust created for the minor. Mm-hmm. That way you've got someone in place to make sure these assets are taken care of properly. And then you name the trust as the beneficiary of the asset instead of the minor directly. Yeah, see, that makes a lot more sense. And I mean, I know a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's like $11 million or something. So I don't really need to worry about state planning because I don't have anything near that. What would you say to someone like that? Because you've already covered like five different subjects that has nothing to do with the value of an estate, but I do have people mm-hmm. saying it. Yeah, and it's it's a common misconception because you want to have a plan in place when you pass away, regardless of how much assets you have, you still have something that's going to be inherited by your family. So whether it's a million dollars or a hundred thousand or you know ten thousand. 
there are still assets that you want to make sure are going in the right direction that you want them to go in, and you're not unintentionally creating discord between your family as assets go in the direction that no one expected. Right. I mean, because that, that's what I love about a trust. I mean, I, I think it was someone once told me it's kind of like a suitcase. And so, you know, it, it basically you put everything in there and then it comes out according to your wishes, where a will, of course, could change based on probate and everything else. Or if you just leave it as POD, assuming the children are going to do what you want them to do when you pass away, which is a pretty good assumption that unless there's only one child, um, that's probably not going to happen the way you want it to. Um, but, uh, so, um, uh, when we're dealing with estates and taxes and all that, is there any estate tax right now? I mean, how much do I have to worry about making before I worry about paying estate taxes? Hey, um, Russ. Well, hey, for most Come people, this. they're not having to deal with it because the current exemption gives you $11 million to pass estate tax free your death to whomever you want. Also, if you're married, you can give an unlimited amount of assets to your spouse without paying any estate tax. And if you are a married couple and you're the surviving spouse and you die, you can actually inherit the exemption of the first spouse. So that would bump you up to $22 million when you pass, not subject to estate tax. I think what is concerning people now, at least not the ones that are below 11, but the ones mm -hmm. that are probably above 11, is the fact that if the Democrats get in the White House and the Senate, <laughs> then we may have a decrease in that exemption, or it's going to decrease in 2026 yeah. regardless, but they've also been talking about pushing that up to a much earlier date, so right. people with assets over $11 million are going to lose out on an extra $11 million of exemption, so that's been kind of running through some of the estate planning discussions we've been having recently, at least with those that are concerned with that. Right. Well, mm -hmm. the, the entire tax uh, changes, I mean, according to the Dems, will be basically eliminating all of the tax changes that Trump has put into play, which from my standpoint would not be a win-win for anyone. I know they always say they're for the rich, but my my listeners already know that's not my opinion. So, um, you know, it's it's going to be a downhill if that happens. But all we can do. And that's another reason. Now, let's just say, because we've had it over the last 15 years, it's went up, it's went down. I think when we first started, it was like a million dollars, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, you know, went up and down. Do I have to change my estate documents every time the law changes or or do they pretty much go with the current laws as they change, if that makes well, sense? Well, most documents, at least the ones that we've prepared, are using a formula to determine what direction you want the assets to go depending on the tax laws at the time of death. So there are options available at the first death to make sure that we maximize the exemptions and then at the survivor's death to maximize the exemptions. And that pretty much has carried the day since the exemption was 600000 back when I started. Yeah. The only issue that did come up is when we had a Tennessee inheritance tax and the exemption was different than the federal state tax. But we don't have a Tennessee inheritance tax now, and I don't see one coming back. So that issue probably won't play out. So hopefully... 
if you have documents that have been properly prepared, they will already incorporate those changes into them because we anticipate stuff like that. If you're not sure or it's been a long time, then that would be another reason to get a review of your estate plan to make sure that you are maximizing your exemptions at the time of death. All right, we're going to take our first break, and then we're going to come back because I'm going to ask him what if we have properties in multiple states and a couple other questions that's coming through. If you want to join the show and you have a question for Russ or you've got a tax question, we made it through the October 15th. Thank you very much. It was quite an exciting day for me. But now we're working on 2020 taxes, so if you're working on your 2020 taxes or you have questions, you can join the show also, 615-737-9986, 615-737-9986. 9986 will be right back. All righty, we are back live. Wow, we got some rock and roll going on there. All right, I have Russ Cook and Associates, attorney at law. And well, actually, Russ Cook, not Russ Cook and Associates. Only have Russ on the phone. Hey, Russ, you still there? Yeah, yeah. There you go. I didn't lose you during the break. I try sometimes, but he keeps staying on. No, just joking. No, it's, it's the two of us. I'm lucky I didn't hang up inadvertently. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, we have history. Okay, so let the, um, really quick before I get too much into things, what is exactly a trust? I had someone email and say, well, what is a trust exactly? So I, I always assume people probably know that, but it's a great question. So what is a trust? Well, it's basically an arrangement where you pick someone, he's called a trustee, to manage assets for a person called a beneficiary under certain terms that are put together in an agreement. So it's basically like a contract that you create between these two people in order to make sure your wishes are carried out. Now, in the context of estate planning, we have different types of trusts. There are trusts that are created during life and then trusts that are created at death. And depending on the goal that the client has, there are different trusts to make sure that we are able to take care of those desires. So it, can everything just go into a trust? Yeah, yeah. And so to give you an example, a common trust that we create for clients is called a revocable living trust. It's usually set up where the client is the trustee, the client is the beneficiary, and the trust is there for the client's benefit. And the purpose of the trust is to fund it during your life with your assets so that in the event of your incapacity, there's a person who can take over as the successor trustee and manage those assets. And more importantly, in the event of death, you have a successor trustee that takes over according to the agreement and manages those assets for the people that you've named as successor beneficiaries. And that process of allowing the successor trustee to take over is different than with a will where you have to file the will at the courthouse and get court approval in order for someone to be able to handle your assets. With a trust, there is no court approval required. So that means you basically avoid probate, correct? Yes. Yeah, you avoid the probate process. The probate process is when you have to file a will with the court, get your executor appointed in order to handle your assets at your death and give them to your beneficiaries. With a trust, 
you're naming a trustee instead of an executor, and the trustee just follows your wishes according to the trust agreement, and they don't have to be formally appointed by the court. So the process is very streamlined and is especially useful for clients that have property, not only in Tennessee, but other states as well. As you open the door to the next question I have, so if um, if I have property in multiple states, do I have to go through probate in those other states with the trust or kind of walk through? If I've got properties in multiple states, is it based on state law? How does that work exactly? Well, if you pass and you have a will, then in order for you to have someone appointed formally to manage those assets for you, you have to file the will where you in the county where you died here in Tennessee, and then you have to file the will again in each county where you have real estate outside the state of Tennessee. So that may be a county in Colorado, a county in Florida, and each and every time you're susceptible to whatever probate laws are affecting the transfer of property in those states as well. So as you can tell, it's double, triple probate yeah. for those assets because of that. If I have a trust? And if you have a trust, then you can deed the property into the trust while you're living so that in the event of your death, the successor trustee takes over the property you own in Florida or Colorado, and you don't have to have someone formally appointed. You don't have to apply to the court. It's a much more efficient way of transferring assets. Oh, that seems so much. So then at the time that they, and once the trustee or the distributes the asset to whoever is supposed to, or they sell it, then they would only have to deal with the taxes at the time of sale like anyone else. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's uh, much easier. Good to know. That was a yeah. question that someone had sent over. They have uh, multiple states and they're like, well, what do I do if something happens? And I'm like, I don't know, but I have Russ on the show. So let me ask for sure. Cause I wasn't sure if a trust actually did allow you to basically, I was afraid you'd have to go to every state and file the trust somehow or do something. I wasn't sure what the next steps were. So, um, is there a time, um, an age that you suggest? Is there a, a amount of money someone should have? How does someone know when's the time to consider, um, even having a will as far as that's concerned, what's your suggestion or, you know, expertise on that? Well, we usually encourage clients to start early, for example, let's say that you turn age 18, you have nothing, but if you end up in the hospital and your parents are knocking on the doctor's door asking for information and they're not mm -hmm. appointed your power of attorney for health care, there could be some pushback from the hospital on what sort of information you can, you, they can get. So That's right. uh, we have clients that have kids that are 18 signing power of attorney for financial matters, power of attorney for healthcare matters and living wills. They may not need wills because they may not have anything, but they're at least starting with those documents. And especially if you have kids that are going overseas, know that they will be subject to the laws of the country where they're living and if that country requires a formal document in order for you to see or talk to your kids or get medical information and there's no power of attorney for health care in place, it can be a real nightmare. So that's kind of the starting point. And then as uh, people get older and start accumulating assets or if they get married, 
and they want to make sure the assets go to their spouse, that's a good time to sit down and maybe discuss having a will prepared. Most certainly when you have children, because you have to have something formal in place that names who you want to serve as guardian for the kids. And then, of course, we talked about the issue of giving assets directly to the kids. That's not a good deal either. So you want something in place that will make sure the kids are taken care of, and that's either a will or a revocable trust. And then as years go by, as you accumulate additional assets, it just makes that issue even more apparent. What if you have a child with special needs? Well, Is there something you can do to help them? Yeah, that's a, that's a unique situation where uh, if you don't have an estate plan in place, then you're probably going to create a much bigger problem after you're gone because typically a child with special needs qualifies for certain government benefits. And if they inherit assets, they're going to lose those benefits. That's number one. Number two, they're they may need someone to serve as a conservator. Even though they're 18 or older, they still might need someone to make decisions for them in a legal capacity. So you need something in place to make sure you have those people lined up to take care of your child after you pass away. So for them, it's even a greater need because there are more issues involved after they're gone and making sure the kids are taken care of. So is that an independent trust of some sort or an estate plan that's fully put together? I mean, is it something separate than the living trust or, you know, that you put together for yourself? Yeah, it would be part of it. So let's say you have a special needs child and you've done your estate planning either through a will or a revocable trust, then the language in either document will set up what we call a supplemental needs trust for that child in order to make sure that it's the recipient of not only any assets going through the estate, but also any beneficiary designations on retirement accounts or life insurance. So it's all being coordinated into that special needs trust with someone who you name, and it could be an institution, could be a corporate trustee, could be an individual that you trust as trustee to make sure the child's needs are met. Sometimes if it's an institution like a bank or a trust company, you might need someone to advise the bank or trust company on the needs of the child because those are very unique. Uh, And then, of course, you have a guardian or conservator that would also be appointed in case the child needed one to take over in the event of your death to make decisions for that child. Yeah, and and I guess you can't really get a conservatorship until what, age 18 or is it 21 now? 18. So usually with clients that have special needs children, we're encouraging them uh, within a couple months of them turning 18 to come back into our office so we can start the process of getting them legally appointed conservator for their children. Yeah, that seems like the best plan. And I'd be curious in this particular case, they're getting divorced and it'd be interesting to see, can you actually have two people as conservator? Even if they're not married? Yes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I don't not, know. I mean, it's like if they're in the same house, it makes sense. Well, what do you do when it's outside the house? Hey, what do I know? You know uh, me. I mean, I'm like, let's keep it simple. One person makes the decisions because I'm thinking that's going to be harder to make it work. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, divorce in itself. Um, so making sure that. So if I change 
divorce. Let's talk a divorce. Why not? Because everyone's going to almost go through at least 50% of people. So if you have, you know, paid on death on everything, obviously your best bet is to what do it through a trust. That way, every time you get married, divorced or something happens, it will always stay to the trust, not go to an individual. Cause I know at one time you told a story about where the ex-wife ended up getting the inheritance or something because the guy forgot to transfer the uh, POD or something. Yeah, that's a common problem. Usually when we're meeting clients, we ask them who they've named as beneficiary on their various assets so that we can see if something like that is still in existence. But even then, clients forget or don't remember or whatever. So if we can get everything coordinated through one document, and usually it's the revocable living trust, again, because you can set it up during your life. It's the best way coordinate assets. So like you said, if you can change the beneficiary on your assets so that they're not going to individuals, but going into the trust, then all you have to worry about is what does the trust say? And that's something that people check more often than beneficiary designations on various accounts. I agree, especially when you have Mm -hmm. have people that have retirement accounts that they forgot about until they get ready to retire and they get notices and they're like, oh, yeah, I had one of those with this company, you know, and that was 15, 20, 30 years ago. And they don't have any idea. Thank goodness they were alive to get it. Yeah. And sometimes it's a pain to go through the process of just changing beneficiaries. That, that's just me personally throwing that out there. I had to do it <laughs> hey, that's why I let you do all that kind of work. I just let it you know, <laughs> deal with it, please. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to take our second break. And if you have any questions, this is Russ Cook, an attorney at law, and of course, Dr. Friday. Uh, you can reach us here in the studio at 615-737-9986, 615-737-9986. I will give out Russ's number, and you can always check the web at russcookpc.com. And we're going to be right back with the Dr. Friday Show. All righty, we are back live here in studio with Russ Cook from Russ Cook and Associates, attorney at law. And we are taking your calls. So if you've got questions, either legal questions about a state or setting up a trust, or maybe you're a beneficiary of a trust and you're not too sure exactly what you need to be doing or um, executor or whatever that may be, 615-737-9986, 615-737-9986. All right, Russ, we have Barb on the phone from Murfreesboro. Barb, can you join us? Yes, Dr. Friday. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question. Um, My only child, my son, was killed in May, um, and I was wondering, I want to leave all of my estate to my brother. Is just a simple will enough to take care of that? Russ, are you there? Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't hear this question, though. Okay. That's right. Let me repeat it real quick. The question is, she lost her son in May, her only child, and so she wants to leave everything to her brother is a simple will. She doesn't have a lot. She's just got a basic situation. Is a simple will good for that, or does she need something more to accomplish it? Well, if if it's just going to his brother and there's not really any problems with the rest of the family members and that sort of thing, then yeah, we'll should be able to take care of it. 
Barb, uh, the way we have uh, Russ hooked up, he may not hear your side of it, but you can you hear his answer? Uh, no, I can't hear anything. Okay, well, we're just doing great here. Let me repeat. He says, <laughs> yes, a will should be fine as long as there's not a lot of other members. Do you no. have any other siblings? I, ha- I have one, one other sister. Um, she's a stroke victim. Um, and so it that and they have plenty of money. So my brother okay. would be the one that I would want to give it to. And so he says yes. But my suggestion would is your brother younger or older than you? He's younger. Okay. I don't, I mean not that we ever know when our day's going to be and I'm sorry for the loss of your son that's uh that's difficult, but um when it's when it's said and done you might want to have a second person obviously in place or a charity, whatever your situation might call for, um you know, just in case the brother or maybe his kids you'll leave it to, whichever it might be. Okay, that sounds All right. good. Thanks, Barb, for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, Russ, can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah All right, I'm not too sure, probably because of the way it's hooked up today. It's uh, uh, But she she didn't have only an older a sister that had a stroke, and they were financially set, so she wanted to make sure her brother would have whatever she had uh, okay. was the situation. So I uh, just said she might want to have. Now, can you can have, let's just say, you know, the first person I want is my brother, but if he dis- he dies before I do, can you then leave it to either his children? Is that generation skipping? If that happens, how does that work? Just out of curiosity. She didn't ask it. I am. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, you would want to make sure that there's an alternative plan in case the primary one doesn't carry out. And so if he's not living, typically... You would say, at least I would, in the estate planning documents, if the client wants it, to his issue or descendants, the brother's descendants per stirpes. It's a way of making sure that the generations below the brother, his descendants, take equally. And that's something that's important because if you just say to my brother and you don't say anything about whether he's living or deceased in order to take the inheritance, and he predeceases her, then he's going to end up with his estate getting that inheritance, and who knows where it's going to go from there. So we always try to encourage clients to do a lot of what-if planning. What if the brother's not living okay now to his kids? We have that in the document. What if he doesn't have kids? Like you said, is there a mm-hmm. charity that you want it to go to? Gotcha. That's yeah. Well, that's that's always the problem with with any of that, because that's probably the hottest part, because you don't really know. And that's why visiting it every two years or because children are born. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. family members are gone, you know, I mean, and things change like that. And you may have them listed in some system. And so that needs to be updated and reviewed. You might not like them anymore. No, I'm just joking. Hey, you know, it happens. Now, uh, mm-hmm. is there, I mean, you had one that was for a child that is um, disabled, you know, maybe not able, but what if you have an irresponsible child? Is there a way of using either a trust or an estate um, to maybe making sure because, you know what, I maybe end up passing away. My estate's big enough where if I leave all this to this child, it is going to go from bad to worse because they don't have the mindset to be able to, uh, do anything, you know, but, but spend it or whatever. Um, is there a way of controlling, you know, how much can be paid out for what, I don't know, something along those lines? Yeah, there can just kind of similar to the supplemental needs trust for the disabled child. You would have what I call a 
possibly a support trust for the irresponsible child where there's a third-party trustee. If Typically, in that scenario, you would want somebody who's not a family member controlling the child's money because you don't want to create a conflict between the family members. So you might have like a corporate trustee, a bank, or an institution to do it. And their job would be to make sure that the child's needs are met on a monthly basis, but the trustee is in charge of making sure the assets are invested properly. And they're there to say no, because a lot of these children will press the buttons saying, oh, I need this you know, Lamborghini because that's my style, and I need to live in a $2 million house and that sort of thing. Now, I'm not against those things. I'm just saying that if you keep going in that direction, chances are the money's not going to be there very much longer. Right. So uh, that's where the trustee and institution, neutral trustee, can do a really good job. And then I have clients that come in that are worried about addiction. And right. That's it, that's what this person was leading up to. Their child yeah. was an addict. Um, addict. So, you know, so if they got the money, they were afraid they would actually just kill themselves. Right. Because they would they would or go through the money so fast that it you know wasn't funny. So is there a way of I mean, you can't stop them from from using the money for I mean, they have creative ways, but limiting their access so that they maybe don't have so much money that they kill themselves because they get too much drugs or I don't know. Yeah, that, those are big, very, very legitimate concerns because whenever an addict receives asset money, it's going to make it much worse. And so we try to set the estate plan up where the trustee has the ability if there's a situation where they feel the child is in active alcoholism or, or drug use to postpone any distributions until the child enrolls in a rehab facility and to allow for the trustee to request drug tests in the event that they feel that that's a condition the child is is under. And if a child ends up in prison, you don't necessarily want to keep doling money out to a child. They can't take it in prison either. And there's, I assure you, there's not a whole lot to buy when you're in prison anyway. You probably don't need a lot of money. Um, yeah, so, you have to buy food, so those, I'm told. Exactly. So there's situations where we build that into the document so that the trustee has some latitude to make sure that those issues are taken care of. And a lot of times we even tell clients, it might be good for you to write a letter to the trustee telling them of your particular situation so that they're aware that your child has been has a history of these things and what sort of treatment you want them to have as a result. It gives the parents uh, a lot more uh, input into the planning if they're able to kind of guide the trustee on specific issues. It's not part of the document because we don't want right. it to be written in stone. It's just more of a guidance to the trustee, and I think that that's helped a lot in those situations. So I have someone just email that says, what happens if you know you set up a trust, but you can't find it or the attorney? <laughs> Sounds like me, you well, need to start over. But hey, I didn't want to put that on the email. So the question <laughs> is, do you need to start over? <laughs> well, you, you probably do, because any new attorney that you go to will probably have their own set of planning documents, and it would sure. be a lot cheaper for you to 
have them prepare an estate plan for you using their own documents than for them to try to hobble something together based on a copy that you might have that was prepared, you know, many years ago. So I would suggest it's it's less expensive to go in knowing that you're probably going to have to redo the, the estate plan. So I've always told a lot of people, because, well, I mean, I'm a big advocate of trust, because one of the things I like is that it doesn't go through probate, or at least most nothing. I mean, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. always that exception to exceptions, but 90% won't go through probate, which means the world doesn't have to know everything about what happens uh, in your estate. Uh, and But most people are like, it's so expensive. But to me, if you have to go through probate, you're buying attorney's time, which has got to be fairly expensive when it comes to that time, right? Yeah, I mean, it's probably, I mean looking... a, it's probably a minimum of $5,000 at least. That's how we're handling it as a deposit on the front end. And any estate plan that you put together with a revocable trust will be less than that. Right. And so all you're doing is you may pay a little more up front, but you're saving a whole lot of time and effort and issues on the back end when you're having to transfer those assets to family members. Yeah. I mean, the the whole idea that basically someone could walk in and go ahead and start dealing with the estate versus having to wait for a court to tell you what you can or can't do already has got me on the right side. So um, that makes it so much simpler. Um, what kind of... Um, what kind of things do, does the is it an executor who who handles a trust? Who's the one that does the, the distributions? It's the trustee. That's the trustee. So, what yeah. kind of job does the trustee have? Because when you're looking to put somebody in that position, right? You don't want to put somebody that maybe can't do certain things or whatever. So, what kind of I mean, what kind of things would they be doing in a normal trust? Let's just assume that there's basically bank accounts, retirement accounts, and a house or something, you know, standard, or what I would consider a standard retirement. Well, when a person takes over a trust as a trustee, their first job is to make sure they can coordinate with all the different advisors, like the accountants and the attorneys and the financial consultants, to gather up all the documents that are necessary to administer the trust and then basically follow instructions to get the job done. Because a lot of the folks that are already put in place by the decedent can take the trust and administer it according to the decedent's wishes. Typically, the trustee just has to make sure that they're following that. That would be probably the low end of the scale. When it comes to more sophisticated trust planning, a trustee may be in charge of uh, making sure that the beneficiary's interests are are met. Uh, They may have to talk to them and make sure that they're yes or no if they're continuing the trust for a beneficiary. So they may have to do make some hard decisions going forward. So it is a position that requires somebody that, probably knows a little bit about finance, probably knows a little bit about the family, maybe a little bit, probably knows a little bit about just following instructions and accountable uh, and doesn't have a situation where they might be in conflict. I think to say what the worst situation is is when a trustee is picked that probably shouldn't have been, and that's when you have people that are in 
know, the trustee and the other beneficiaries are siblings or, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not getting along and nobody's doing anything. And, yeah. Yeah, One person dealing at the other and how that works. It's never very good. All right. We're yeah. going to take our last break here. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Russ Cook, an attorney at law. You can join the show at 615-737-9986. I think the weather is way too nice outside. People may be listening, but they're out doing something fun and exciting. And we're going to be right back with the Dr. Friday Show. Russ Cook from Russ Cook and Associates, an attorney of law right here in Brentwood, Tennessee. I've worked with Russ for a long time. Seems like quite a while. So um, definitely uh, love working with him and being able to refer my clients to him because let me tell you, he's helped quite a few of them. So Russ, what if I want to get ready to set up for a trust or something? Is there a set of documents you can send out that usually helps people kind of start with the questionnaires? Because it seems like setting it up myself, I know there's a lot of questions. Who's going to get this? When? What? Where? Um, that you can get people or is it something that you kind of take the first meeting and then get them on the right track? How do you work it? When we make the appointment or if a client calls to schedule an appointment, we'll email them back a series of questions that they're probably going to want to have answers to when they come in for the initial meeting. Also, we encourage them to bring in their documentation if they have the deeds to their real estate, uh, have um, bank account information, balance sheets. Those are all helpful in the initial consultation because we're going to go through everything that they have and also talk about the people they want to put in place for the various, whether it's executor, trustee, guardian, power of attorney, agent, et cetera. Right. Because I mean, obviously in my own personal situation, I have quite a few of real estate, then I have businesses and different things. Mm -hmm. And I know if you're a business owner, there are bylaws or um, partner agreements, whatever, that would also need to be at least reviewed, correct? As part of that or no, not part of that? No, no, it would be. We usually do a comprehensive review of all the assets to make sure we have everything that we know is going to pass in the event of death. Some assets do victory designations like 401ks and IRAs, so we need to know who's listed on those. Life insurance, bank accounts. Of course, with businesses, especially when you're in business with other folks, you want to know what happens. Some of those interests are subject to buy-sell agreements and things like that. So we get into all of that we uncover some things the client didn't know, like, oh, my corporate charter expired three years ago. You know, those are the, <laughs> I mean, that's the stuff that, that we try to make sure people get up to date with and then keep them up to date because right. that sort of stuff is important. Yeah. You don't think about as a small business owner, you know, you're worried about every day to day. And then, you know, then you get that letter from the state that says, you know, you're expired or whatever. <laughs> I've just dealt with two of my clients that receive some of those letters and you have to do the reinstatement. And, but, you know, I mean, the reason we have 
shields is because you're afraid of something happening or whatever. And if you don't keep those shields up, then theoretically you're operating as a sole proprietorship in my mind. I mean, there may be some legal differences and all that, but you know, that's not what you wanted to be operating on. And I can tell you, there's a lot of people that are listening right now. And I know I always talk about Russ and estate planning, but Russ also does bylaws and all that. Cause I know because he handles mine and I send people to do, and that's something that I think a lot of people go into either LA, LLCs or corporations and they go down the secretary of state or they obtain a, a charter or, or whatever. And, and that's all they have. And so when you have two people in business, even a husband and wife, there is always an exit plan. What if there's a divorce? What if there's, you know, something happens to one person, all those questions need to be answered. So if you're listening and you have a business and you've went down and you've obtained a, a bylaw or, I mean, a, um, a charter, you need to call Russ as well, because I can't tell you how many people walk into my office and we don't have anything to work off of to know what the exit is on the partnership or anything else. And in accounting, we still need some of that bad enough if it actually broke up and, you know, partnerships are a lot like marriage to me, Russ, it seems about 50, 50, if they're going to survive or not. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, that's a good point because the other thing is if the corporation gets sued and you don't have, uh, operating agreements or uh, bylaws or anything like that, then uh, you open yourself up to the argument that they can pierce the corporate veil and go directly to the individuals because there's not a whole lot of corporate structure there. Well, that's it. I mean, and, and that's, again, the reason you went and did all of this and you filed the taxes and you did these things was because you wanted that shield. And then, I mean, I know even opening a bank account nowadays, many of the banks, at least the SunTrust that I, well, Truist now, they always ask for them because they want to know if I have the ability to open up the bank account, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and not saying all banks are equal, but I'm just saying you do need to have that information so that you can do, you can't sign for a loan if you get in a line of credit or something unless you have those documents. So really important to have those documents. Same thing with the estate planning, anything you're doing along those lines, call Russ. That's my answer. Always call Russ because if he doesn't uh -huh. do it. He always knows how to get someone to do it. All right, Russ, the number I have for people to call you directly or to your office is 615-370-2444. Does that sound right? 3702444. Good, because that's the number I've been giving people for about 15 years. 615-370-2444. Russ Cook and Associates is in Brentwood. You can also check him out on the web at russcookpc.com. Russ, awesome to have you on the show. And Thank I appreciate you, you joining much. me. All right. All right. And if you need my phone number, it's 615-367-0819. And you can reach me at drfriday.com. <laughs>